well, I wonder if you are a Christian, you call yourself a Christian here today, if you've ever found the Christian life hard. And I guess that the answer will, of course, be yes. And we know that Jesus didn't promise us an easy ride. The Bible describes the Christian life as a fight, as a marathon, as a long and often arduous journey with struggles and trials and temptations on every side. And we follow in this way in the footsteps of our master, the Lord Jesus. And just as with him, glory awaits for us. But in the present, we are called to walk the way of the cross. And just like him, God does not spare us from suffering or opposition or frustration or from disappointment or from the effects of a fallen world. And the Bible forewarns us of that fact so that we will know what we're getting into when we uh, choose to trust in Jesus. But it's nevertheless really easy, isn't it, to become weary in the Christian life, to become confused at times, and maybe to wonder if it is all really worth it in the end. And perhaps that is how you feel this evening. And it was certainly the danger for the readers of this remarkable letter that we're dipping into in January the letter of Hebrews. The church that the, the author is writing to, we don't know who the author is, but the, the church that he was writing to was once full of zeal and joy in the Lord. They would have given up anything to serve Jesus, even their houses, their possessions. Nothing would stop them. But over time, they'd grown tired and discouraged, and so much so that they had come to the point where they were drifting from the gospel and turning from the Lord Jesus Christ altogether. And this letter is written to them to galvanize their faith, to bring them back from the brink, to remind them of all that God has done for them, all that is theirs in Jesus, so that they will recommit themselves to him and take up their cross again. And you see, some of us here tonight might actually recognize ourselves with that sort of temptation. The Christian life has got so hard that we are wondering whether we should stop it altogether. And if it is, then Hebrews is a letter that is written just for you, and you need to hear it. But even if you are not at that point, it is still a letter with a message that is incredibly relevant to us. Because what it has to say to us is designed to invigorate our faith and to energize our obedience, and to fuel our endurance. And right at the start of the letter is a kind of headline or summary of everything that the writer is going to say. He confronts us with this fundamental reality. Did you see it in verse 2? God has spoken to us by his Son. Such a remarkable statement. We take a moment just to let it sink in. That God has spoken to us. Into the darkness and confusion of our world. Into the sin and the brokenness. The transcendent, holy creator, the maker of all things, has intervened and chosen to make himself known to people like you and me. He's unveiled his mind and his purpose and his will. He's inviting us into fellowship with him. It is as one person said that he's sharing his secrets with us, taking us into his confidence, 
And he's not done so half-heartedly, but he has done so through his own son. The eternal second person of the Trinity come in the flesh. Through his incarnation, through his words and his work, through his exaltation to the Father's right hand, God has spoken to us. He's not forgotten us. He's not left us. He's not abandoned us. He's present with us. And over the course of the the next couple of weeks, we're going to see uh, much more about the content of this message, this communication that God has given us, what exactly it is that he has told us. But right at the start of the letter, what he wants us to see is just how incredible and amazing it is that God has spoken, to arrest our attention, to see what a privilege it is, and also to see what a responsibility it is, to make sure that we don't ignore him or fail to respond with faith. And so just in the remaining time, what I want us to do is to see two things that the writer says to us. First of all, God has spoken to us his full and final word. So we see that God has spoken to us in his son. And what he wants to do in the first couple of verses is to show us just how remarkable that fact is. The fact that we have received a surpassing revelation from him, a complete communication. There is nothing that he has left out. Just look at verse 1 where the author writes, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And the verse tells us that God has actually been at work revealing himself throughout the whole of history from the very start of the Bible. And you see that he's revealed himself in two major eras or periods, like two acts in a play. On the one hand, he spoke in the past to our ancestors, that is to the Israelites in the time of the Old Testament. But now he has spoken to us, the church, in these last days, the New Testament period, in his son and the gospel he brings. And these two eras of God's revelation are not contradictory uh, communications, as we'll see. But what the writer does want us to see is that what we have received far exceeds anything that went before such that anyone who lived before the coming of Christ would do anything to be in our position. And we can see how the writer emphasizes the contrast between the two different manners or modes through which God chose to speak. Did you see that to our ancestors, to the Israelites in the Old Testament period, God spoke at many times and in many ways. That's it. He he communicated bit by bit, piecemeal, And on many occasions, he gave a little taste of himself here and there. First to Abraham, and then to Moses, and then to David, and then to the rest of the prophets. But it was incomplete, it was selective. And you see that he also did it through many different forms. He did it through visions, through dreams, through a word of knowledge, through an angel appearing. 
And it was, of course, a wonderful privilege to know something of the mind and will of God, something of his plan of salvation for the world. But by its very nature, it is fragmentary, incomplete, not yet finished. And the writer says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. Do you see? No diversity, no variety of forms, just final, decisive, singular, complete. And it's in person. Just listen to the finality of that phrase. He has spoken to us by his Son. You see, it was as if in the Old Testament times, I don't know if you've had this experience, if you've got young kids, you might do, where you're trying to teach your, your young child to eat food. And what you do is you sit them in a chair and you give them a, a little morsel of food, something like a Cheerio, and then maybe a slice of banana. There may be some chocolate to go after it. But by nature, it's just a little bit, just a little taste. That is what it was like for people in the Old Testament times. But to us, God has spoken in a son. It's as if he's laid before us a whole great banquet. He's led us in to everything that he has to share. And you see that it's not only true that God has revealed himself more fully and completely to us, though that is true. But actually, I think the writer wants to say what he has said to us in Jesus in the gospel has actually brought to a fulfillment everything that has gone before. It's brought it to its climax such that it surpasses it. These two stages of God's revelation tell one story. One story of how God intervenes in his world to put all things right. And so they complement each other. They relate together. You see, there is one author. God spoke in the past and God spoke today. There's no contradiction between them. But the Old Testament revelation was always interim, provisional, pointing forward away from itself. It was full of predictions and types and shadows, hopes and anticipations. And it always looked forward to that time when something greater would arrive that would surpass it. Bring it in a way to a close. When the divine human Messiah would come and reveal God's mind fully and bring about the full salvation from sin that had always been promised. And do you see that now that God has spoken in his Son, those days of fulfillment have come? That's what he means by that phrase, the last days. It speaks of the time between when Jesus came at his incarnation to the time when he will return. Those are the days that we live in, the days of the Messiah. By speaking in his Son, God has brought the final time to bear, the time that Moses and David and Jeremiah longed to see. It is now here. And so you see that when God has spoken to us in his Son, he has spoken his full, decisive, complete revelation, and in so doing, brings about the fulfillment of all of his plans. And that is what he has led us in on. And one of the implications of this, of course, is if God has spoken fully and finally in his Son, that there is no more revelation to come. We're not meant to look anywhere else for another vision, another dream, 
another angel to appear to know the mind of God. We're to look at Jesus, who is preserved for us in the witness of the New Testament. That is where we are to look, to hear and meet God. But also the writer wants to tell us that we live at a time of great privilege. Because as, often, as complicated and often difficult as our lives are, we are actually in those last days, on the edge of eternity. In fact, Hebrews will go on to say that the future world is already broken into the present, that God's Spirit lives amongst us. And to live this side of Christ is something someone in the Old Testament times could only ever dream of. So God has spoken to us, to you and me, in his son, his full and final word. But also, and secondly, and perhaps most importantly, he actually wants to show that he has spoken to us by his unsurpassable son. You see, the author not only contrasts the moods and manners of God's revelation, but you see, he also contrasts the mediators, the, 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 the people by whom the revelation comes. And did you see in the past that he spoke through prophets in, in verse 1? He spoke through middlemen, human beings, undoubtedly great people, people appointed by God, but men never the least. But to us, he has spoken by his son. And it focuses on his unique nature. It's a kind of qualitative idea. He is a son in the way that no one else is a son. He is the divine son of God, made incarnate for us and our salvation. In this sense, he is the prophet par excellence because he is God speaking in person to us. And so in that sense, he doesn't just bring a message to us like the prophets did, because he is the message himself. And in the rest of the verses from 3 and 4, what the writer does is that he, this is already the most staggering claim, but he wants to help us understand just how staggering it is. And so in these verses, it's kind of like he reels off a CV or a resume of the person and work and dignity of his son, just so that we will see how incomparable he is to the prophets who went before. And you see, as we go through, that he is the one that God appointed heir of all things. It's a really important statement in the letter to the Hebrews, and it's referring to Jesus' um, appointment as the risen and exalted king of the universe. He's now in heaven as a man, ruling the whole of the cosmos. He's fulfilled that promise first given to Abraham and then reiterated to Abraham that one day a seed would rule, would govern the world and put all things right. And Jesus is that heir today, reigning, ruling, possessing all things. And the wonder of it is, as you read on in the letter to the Hebrews, is that he, as heir, shares all of his blessings with us. We are fellow heirs with him. One day we will rule over the cosmos with him. 
But you see, he's not just the human heir who rules. He's also the one through whom God made the universe in the first place. As the divine son, he is the mediator through whom God made all things. And so as such, he is completely different from all other creatures. No other person can match him. As the ascended heir of all things, he is now the one who justly possesses all things that he first created at the beginning of time. And you see, to reinforce the point, verse 3, we're told that he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. We've got two phrases that are really reflecting the same idea, namely that the Son is fully divine and that he perfectly reflects God and communicates him to us. As the radiance of God's glory, he's like the sun's rays. The sun reaches its through its rays, and God reaches us, communicates to us through his Son. As the perfect representation of his being, the Son totally and completely reveals God to us. To look at him is to see the Father. And that is why the revelation that comes to us is so incomparable, because it is God himself turning himself to his world. But also notice that he sustains all things. He created all things. He now possesses all things. But also at this moment, as the ascended heir, he is sustaining the cosmos and sustaining your lives, moment by moment, leading it to its destiny, ensuring by his word that his purposes come to pass. Guarding you and me, making sure that however hard our lives are, that we don't give up and fall away. Right now, he sustains all things. But even more than that, as the the author kind of adds uh, these things on, we see that he has made purification for sins. You see, for the world and for ourselves to be brought to glory, it's not just enough that Jesus upholds all things. He must first make purification for our sins. Hebrews will go on to explain how we are guilty, unclean, unworthy of having relationship with God, and that Jesus has come to make the perfect sacrifice as the perfect high priest to deal with sin once and for all so that we can be admitted back into fellowship with God. Jesus made purification for your sins. And then finally, we come to the kind of climactic phrase which sets us up for the rest of the letter where we see that after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And you see how it reflects the very first statement of Jesus being the heir of all things. It takes us to his exaltation, his ascension to the right-hand side of the Father where he is now ruling and governing all, over all things as the king of the universe. But also, notice that he has sat down. And that tells us that he is not only the great king who rules, but also the long-awaited king-priest 
who would deal with our sin and lead us into the presence of God. In the Old Testament, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year and stood. Because the work of dealing with sin, atoning for sin, was never finished. But when Jesus has made purification for sins and he enters heaven, he sits down because his work is finished. And all that is left now for him to do is to guide things to their goal and to bring us safely to him. The, uh, some of you will know that before uh, coming here, I was, working, I was in academia for a little bit, and it's just interesting when you are in that world and in that environment, people will often send around their resumes or their CVs, and um, I used to receive them and feel quite intimidated by them because people would have this huge long list of the things that they had written and published and achieved. Well, Jesus' CV tells us that he is the heir, the creator of all things, that he's the radiance of God's glory. He made purification for sins and who now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven as king and priest of all. And the point is not that we are to compare ourselves to this CV, but that we are to compare the prophets like Moses and Daniel and David to Jesus' CV. And that we're to see that those men, as great as they were, who delivered God's revelation in the past, are nothing compared to the messenger who has come to us. And on the one hand, it means that what he reveals we can trust. But on the other hand, it means that it demands unswerving allegiance. Because the one who has come and brought God's message is God's son himself. Unsurpassable. Incomparable. And so as the author opens this, his word of exhortation to these wavering hearers, he confronts us with this startling reality that God has spoken in his Son. It's his full and final word, delivered by his incomparable, unsurpassable Son. And we have that revelation now found in the Scriptures that bear witness to him. And as we come to a close, the question really is, now that God has spoken to us, how are we going to respond? Whatever is going on in our lives at this moment, wherever we feel we are at, however easy or difficult it feels, God has spoken to you in his Son, and he calls us to listen, to hear what he has said, to embrace him with faith to stick with him when it's hard. And the one thing that you cannot do, whether you're a Christian or not here tonight, is ignore this fact. Because God, the creator, has spoken to you. And there's no escaping. And the question is, will 
we listen, and as we go on through the letter, we'll see. It will come back to this idea. Will we embrace and will we hear? Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you have spoken to us. You've, re- you've revealed your mind, your purpose, your will, your salvation to us in your Son. We thank you that he is the insurpassable um, Son. You coming in human flesh to make yourself known to us. And we pray that whoever we are, wherever we feel we are in our walks with you, however hard the Christian life is for us now, we pray that you would help us now turn in our hearts to you with faith and trust and thanksgiving. Amen.